You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. anything that's going on in my family, you know that um, we've gotten to have Ruth home for a year because of COVID from college, and now um, in just a few weeks, we're going to be sending not only Ruth back to college, but Tobias to college. Whether you have a kid who's going to college or not, just pretend with me that you do. If, if you had a kid who was, you were getting ready to send off to college, what would be some of the things you're concerned about as you send them? Okay, how are they going to eat? That's will their faith stay strong? Why would you be concerned about that in, at college? Are you speaking with any kind of personal knowledge about that? She's a college professor who um, who realizes the pull. I've I, I really thought of it just this. This siring call to compromise that is so prevalent on campus. Um, even beyond that, for we think about the Rumswinkles or other people, uh, the Griffins who are, and the Cerritos who are getting ready to bring a baby into the world. And many people would look and say, this is a very scary time to bring a child into the world because of all the pressure to come in line with very ungodly ideologies. In the midst of all that, um, Christians are tempted to, to respond wrongly. It's very easy for Christians to look at the culture and to have kind of a self-righteous standpoint where we're the ones who are right, they're the ones who are wrong, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Other Christians want to go and just kind of become like a monastic life where I'm going to get a piece of land out in Montana, 100 miles away from my nearest neighbor, and I'm not going to have a cell phone service. I'm going to get off the grid, and I'm going to raise my family without, without any influence from the culture. And then Christians are also uh, tempted in other ways just to, to give in, even in subtle ways, to, to begin to, to adopt the worldview, the morality, the the um, the the, the basis of, of of truth or untruth of the culture, and, and yet all of those things are 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 not what he wants for us. He wants us to be salt. He wants us to be light. He wants us to have influence in our society to bring the truth of Jesus to bear without compromise, but with a heart of love that we might win people to Christ. 
And anybody who's trying to walk that line knows how difficult it is. And as I think about this text, this is exactly what this text is talking about. And in many ways, I feel like we're just going to scratch the surface. But at very least, to begin to start the conversation, how can we live in a society that wants to pull us away from Christ in a way that is humble, compassionate, loving and absolutely unwavering when it comes to truth. Just like a backbone of steel and a very tender heart of Christ's love for everybody. How do we do that? Again, I, I, I believe that he at least wants to, to point us in the right direction in Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Let me read it for us. And to the angel of the church at Pergam, Pergamum, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness. My faithful one who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teachings. (laughs) I've been practicing how to say this, and now I'm up here. (laughs) I want to say Nickelodeon, but that's not true. Nicolaidens, I think, is, is right. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a, new, and a name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you again because we need you. Lord, this, this passage is not easy, and yet this passage is exactly what we need to hear. And so I pray that you would help me to be clear as I seek to communicate it, that you would keep me from error. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to hear what your Spirit says to the churches, that we would hear what your Spirit has said to the church at Pergamum. And Father, I pray that we would live with, without compromise, with hearts of love and compassion, and passion for your son. Give us grace to hold fast to him all the way to the end. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things Jesus is saying to his people at Pergamum, at Pergamum and to his people in Newton. The first thing I believe that Jesus is saying is we must fight the tendency toward compromise. Secondly, Jesus is saying, listen, I I know it's hard. And thirdly, I believe Jesus is saying in this text, it will be worth it in the end. Let's start by remembering where we've been. What was the main thing that Jesus wanted to say to the church at Ephesus? 
Keep your first love. Love love toward who? Love toward God and to His people. Love. What was the main thing that Jesus wanted to say to the church at Smyrna? Remain faithful. I know you're weak. I know it's hard. But keep going. Remain faithful. Today we read Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. And the main thing that Jesus is saying is cling to me. Fight the temptation toward compromise. In other words, follow me with uncompromising loyalty to me no matter what. I want us to try to imagine Jesus writing us a letter. And if he did, my guess is we would go to great lengths to understand exactly what he has said to us. We would parse every word. We would seek to see how every sentence fills in with the whole, fits it. We would seek to understand what he's saying. And I want to remind us that Jesus has written us a letter. Because notice, notice what he says in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, and he writes the church a letter. But yet you go down to verse 17 and notice what he says. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church, but to the churches. So so the letter is written to Pergamum, but it's written to the churches, to his church. Jesus has written letters to us. Two weeks ago, persevere in loving each other. Last week, remain faithful. You're weak, you're tired, Keep going, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And today, he's speaking to us saying, do not compromise. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this letter, this letter seemed long ago and very far away. I mean, you, you think about what we're talking about, Antipas and Balaam and Balak and the, and the Nicolaitan, Latins and manna and white stones and what in the world does any of this mean? 2,000 years ago and 6,500 miles away, this, this church was situated. But I want us to bridge this gap. Because what Jesus is saying to us in this letter is incredibly contemporary. And we desperately need to hear it. So let's, let's first, let's try to orient ourselves with some background on Pergamum. This is the city where they are. I have a map here so you can see where it is. If I had, hopefully you can see that okay. You see there on the left, there's Greece. And then we're talking about modern day Turkey. South is Syria. This is north of Israel. And Pergamum is where that red dot is all the way to the very west side of Turkey. The, the The northernmost of the churches that he's writing to in Revelation chapter 2. An artist has given us an idea, this is artwork from the 1800s, of what the city, based on the ruins that are there, I'll show you those in just a minute, of what this city must have looked like in the days when this letter was written. You see there um, on, the, on the left kind of middle, you see this, this massive um, temple which is, is really set up like a throne. We'll talk about that in a second where sacrifices are being made. This magnificent um, city. It was, here's what it looks like today, just by the way. 
have two slides to show what's left. And one more, Mark. Incredible um, place. It was a prominent, um, very prosperous Roman colony. They made peace with Rome very early on. And really, while all the other surrounding city-states were still in opposition to Rome, Pergamum made peace with Rome, and then they allowed Rome to use that as a home base. They allied with Rome for Rome to defeat the rest of that area, then um, what we would call Asia Minor. And they, they were given special privileges. There were things that were able to happen in Pergamum. We'll talk about this in a little bit. That couldn't happen anywhere else because of their loyalty to Rome. It was famous as an artistic, intellectual, and religious center. They had a library in Pergamum that boasted 200,000 um, volumes, second only to the famous library at Alexandria. And this library was, was so well-respected that if you know the, the name Mark Antony, he actually gave that library as a gift to his lover, Cleopatra. This is the first, not, not the first place that parchment was used, but, but Pergamum really took the use of parchment to another level, and the word parchment is actually derivative from the name Pergamum. Amazing architecture, a famous school of sculpture there. And finally, it was home to magnificent temples. A temple there to Zeus, a temple to Dionysus, who was the god of, listen to this, the god of wine, fertility, and theater. Think about that combination. Alcohol, sex, and theater. Imagine how those could go together. It was, there was a famous uh, temple there to Athena, who was the goddess of war and the goddess of wisdom. And then also a temple to Asclepius, the god of medicine, whose symbol um, we'll recognize um, here. Her, the, 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 or the, the symbol of this god was a stick on a, a snake on a pole, and, uh, which is where we get our modern-day uh, um, our medical um, symbol, this, this god of uh, medicine, Asclepius. But even more than all that, Pergamum was famous for being the center of the worship of Rome's emperors. Hard for us to imagine, maybe, uh, worshiping a king... But it's exactly what they did. Rome's emperors, past and present, they had extremely close ties with Rome and deep loyalty to Rome, which seems to be the background of much of the imagery in this letter. The first thing that I believe Jesus is saying in this letter is that they, and hear it we, hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to Pergamum, but to the churches, that He's telling us that we need to fight the tendency toward compromise. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, which, which means you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who, keep teaching, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who hold in the same way the teachings of... <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> 
Somebody, somebody help me. Um, the, the Nicolaitans. L- let's notice first the environment that the people of God in Capernaum are living in. Jesus calls Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is. Like, how's that for a description of your city? You're living where Satan rules. You're living where Satan lives. And there's lots of debate about what it means. It's an incredibly religious city. Again, they have these four main temples. Some think it's referring to this temple um, Zeus, this one that I showed you here in the middle and on the left that kind of looks like a throne. And here there's a, there's a model of it. I think this model is in Berlin, if I'm not mistaken. This model of this throne with, uh, that, is, uh, that is, is ornate and uh, decorated with serpents. But, but most scholars that I read believe that that what they're really talking about is this worship of their emperors that this this deep sense of patriotism toward Rome deep patriotism this where where we're talking about real patriotism where they really are worshiping the patriots of the past this is simply the air that was breathed in Pergamum Deep pride, deep loyalty. But but here's the situation. Rome is responsible for the death of Christians, and yet the Christians in Pergamum are being, are just the culture that they live in is a very patriotic culture to teach them to be loyal to Rome. So you see this, this, this pull that they're in. Even Rome here put to death Antipas, which he calls my witness in verse 13, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells, killed by the Roman government. Um, He was actually roasted alive in a bronze calf in an act of worship. So notice what we have. This, this strong sense of loyalty to country, and I think it's so interesting that the Lord chose us to be preached on the 4th of July. Loyalty toward a government that is at the same time putting to death God's people. And here they are seeking to live faithfully in that environment. And so we need to think about this. Because is loyalty to country a good thing? Not a trick question. Is it a good thing to be loyal? Like, who loves a traitor? Who respects a traitor? No, nobody. It, loyalty to one's country is a good thing. But is there a limit to that loyalty? There's an even greater loyalty. So let's think, what does the Bible teach us about loyalty to one's country? That that what? It's subordinate to loyalty to God. That's exactly right. What else does the Bible teach us about loyalty to one's country? That's exactly right. Like, was Jesus against people paying taxes to the government? No, in in Romans 13, we're commanded to pay taxes to the government. Jesus paid taxes to the government. 
Um, he even goes so far to say, if you resist authority, then you're resisting the ordinance of God. But there is a limit to the loyalty. Our loyalty to the government must always be subordinate to our loyalty to Christ. Ultimately, we're only loyal to Christ and we're loyalty to country because he tells us to be. And so I want us to think about this and we'll start easy. So is, is food a good thing? And all God's people said, amen. That's right. Food is really a good thing. But can food be a bad thing? How can food be a bad thing? Consuming too much of it. That's right. Anything else? You, like, are you, are you trying to convict me? Are you saying that I can make an idol out of food? Yes, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Everybody who knows Tommy Hullett knows that that's a struggle in his life. It's very easy to do that. Is, and, and I'm seeking to be, um, I want to be clear. We need to get into, some, into some, some depth here, into some tricky areas in this text. I'm seeking to be very clear, but also to be very tasteful for the sake of children in the room. So I'm, I'm speaking of physical intimacy you, you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? Is, is physical intimacy between human beings, is that a good thing? Yes. Can it be a bad thing? Yes. And so it's, it's good when it's enjoyed according to God's will and for God's sake. And the exact same thing can be said about sleep and entertainment and work. Is work a good thing? Can work be a bad thing? Can work become an idolatrous thing? It's the same thing with education and clothing and possessions and money and friends and alcohol and patriotism. It can be a good thing, but it can be a very bad thing. And so here's how we tend to think. We tend to compartmentalize our lives. I love Jesus and I love brownies, and I love Corvettes, and I love America, and I love my wife, and I love my kid, you know, whatever. We compartmentalize our life. And so we do our Jesus thing over here on Sunday morning at this time and when it's convenient, but then other times I come over here and Jesus really has nothing to do with my love of food and Corvettes and my family and and all the rest. But here's how it's to work. We are to say, not in these compartmentalized ways, but instead, the testimony of our lives ought to be, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and therefore, I enjoy good gifts from His hand, and I enjoy them as gifts, not as competing pleasures. So that, so that He is the giver... And he's also the governor of how I use those things. But not compartmentalize. Ultimately, I only love Jesus. And so I appreciate all the gifts that come from his hand. But I receive them as gifts from his hand. And I want to use them the way he wants me to use them. Because I know they come from a God who is good. He's the provider. And he's the ultimate pleasure. He's the one providing it. He decides how I enjoy it, and it really is that simple. So on the patriotism front, it seems like the people of 
of Pergamum are, 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 doing, are doing well. They're, they're living in this, in this place where there is obvious um, temptation toward loyalty to the, to the emperor. But they're remaining faithful to Jesus, verse 13, even, even though um, probably their, their pastor is being killed at the hands of the Romans. But I want you to look that some things aren't going so well. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. You know the story of Balaam and, and, and and uh, Balak. You remember that story? I, I can't go there. We're going to run out of time. But write this down. Write down Numbers 22 through 24. And I, I'll just warn you, if that's all you read, it will seem as if Balaam is a good guy, which is why you've got to read the rest of the Bible. If you do a quick search on Balaam, he's all over the place. I had no idea what a prominent figure he was. Um, I hadn't given much thought to him until this week. But write down Numbers 31.16, which really gives the Holy Spirit's commentary on his life. And then also 2 Peter 2.15, which clears up everything we need to know. Here's, here's a summary. Way back in the book of Exodus... God rescues His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And He brings them up through the wilderness. They're there for 40 years. And He begins to bring them into this promised land. And all along the way, when they get closer to the land, they begin to, be, to go through. And there are some people who are saying, yeah, you can pass through my land. Others say no. And so Israel is fighting war after war as they make their way to the promised land. And Israel does well. Well, the king of Moab sees um, what Israel has done to his neighbors. And so he calls on, the, the king of Moab, Balak, calls on this guy Balaam, who has some, knows the Lord in some way. He's some prophet. And he calls on him, I want you to come and curse these people so that they can attack me and beat me. And so uh, Basically, he comes to Balaam and he says, I'll give you a lot of money. I'll fill your house with silver and gold if you will come and curse these people for us. And so first Balaam says no, but then he sleeps on it and he's like, and again, I'm pulling not only Numbers 22 and 24, but the commentary. He sleeps on it, the commentary of Second Peter and, and Numbers 31, and he sleeps on it and decides, I think I will go. And so he goes, and you remember he has this encounter with his donkey. You can go read about that. And he goes there, and he says, listen, I can only say what God tells me to say because he's scared to death God will kill him. And so he, he instead of offering curses, he ends up having to bless Israel three times. And so, again, it looks like he's being faithful to Israel. But in reality, what Numbers 24 shows us, and again, you've got to go read Numbers 31 and 2 Peter 2.15, is that what he actually does is says, listen, I can't curse them for you, but here's what you ought to do. Get the women of Moab to entice the men of Israel to come and to commit immorality with them and to worship Moab's gods. And then here's what will happen. I can't curse Israel for you, 
but they'll end up calling a curse on themselves because they completely forsake the Lord, which is exactly what they do. So Balaam, we see it here in this text, what Balaam does, I can't curse Israel, but if you're wise, I can get Israel to curse itself. So he, so notice what he says here, verse 14. He kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. He uses this because he says basically the exact same thing is happening right now in Pergamum. The culture around the Christians in Pergamum was enticing them to compromise, to adopt the sexual ethics of the of the Greco-Roman world and to make parts of idol worship just a part of life in the city. And so you have all these artisans. You have, you have these different craftsmen making all this magnificent art and architecture. And all of these trade guilds would get together and they would, they would have these feasts where they were having feasts. And in the feast, they were, they were praising the work of these gods and they're being tempted because of money to keep their mouth shut to just go along with it to just say well I don't believe in those things anyway but I'll go ahead and eat this and participate in this and I'll just kind of turn a blind eye they're being tempted this is basically the the, the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans that, that just do whatever you please now here's what I want you to see this is exactly where we live. This is, this is not long ago and far away. Sexual immorality and the worship of all kinds of idols is just, is just part of everyday life in our culture. Right? Like this is, this is, just, this is just the air we breathe. D- don't underestimate the power of the culture around you to shape your view on things. Adopting the culture's view... Uh, on, on whether we're talking about sexual ethics or whether, we're ta- or whether we're talking about materialism or whether we're just talking about this philosophy of just follow your heart. F- being shaped by the culture's view is just, it's, it's easy as falling off a log. It's easy for us to do this. Whether we're talking about the culture's view of parenting or gender roles or, or the philosophy of tolerance or the culture's view of work or the culture is, is working with incredible power to shape the way you think and to shape the way your children think. This is just a side note, but I encourage you not to turn your children loose with a TV or with an iPad or a telephone and a cartoon channel. Back when my kids were growing up, and it's even, it's even different then, there's all kinds of messages being sent to children through cartoons of this worldview. So that, so that, and, and the goal really is for them never to come to a point where they're like, is this right or is it wrong? For them just to follow along. This is just right for them to adopt the ethics of the culture. This is... This is why we constantly need to be reading and thinking about and talking about the Bible. I, I wonder, I, I, like, this, is, this, this passage has challenged me. And I'm wondering if you could graph, now, just to make this fair, apart from 
studying to teach. I'm just talking about just, just my own personal devotion time. Do I sp- if you could graph out, how much time do you spend on news networks? You know, how much time do you spend on social media, which I don't really spend time on social media anymore. But if you could put those, those things and you could compare it to how much you spend time reading the Bible, which would be more? Don't un- if, if we think that, that you can get teaspoonfuls of truth and truckloads of the culture's lies and think that you're going to stand strong in the truth, you're just kidding yourself. This is just reminding me, like, I need to put my phone away and I need to read good things. The, the book of Amos talks about it like a plumb line. And I, and, I, and, I, and I meant to bring, do you ever know what I'm talking about, a plumb line? It's like a weight on the end of a string and so you put the string down and it's a perfectly straight line. And, and the book of Amos talks about, like, here's, here's the nation. And I'm going to come, he says, with a plumb line. Because it's very easy for us just to be swayed by the culture in ways we don't realize. So we're just a little bit out of kilter. And we look straight until we just have this plumb line of the truth of God's word up against our lives. We, we constantly need that. Again, because isn't it easy to fall off on one side or another? It's so easy for us to either hate the culture and just stand in self-righteous judgment of the culture... Or to just give in to the culture and just become part of the culture. And both of those, we just constantly need reminders from the Word of God that we need to have hearts of deep love and compassion and backbones of steel that refuse to compromise. That's not easy. This text is calling us to follow Christ and not the crowd. And since verse 14 focuses so clearly on sexual immorality, let's just make sure we're crystal clear because, because perhaps nowhere is our culture trying harder to shape our minds than in this area. And again, with everything, we need Jesus to be both the giver of the gift and the governor of that gift's use. And again, I'm trying to be clear without being explicit, but, but intimacy is a kind gift from the Savior. Right? Because he loves babies. (laughs) There's one reason he wants families to grow. He really values companionship. He he values, it's for the sake of strengthening relationships in marriage. It's, It's for comfort. You can write this down, 2 Samuel 12, 24. And I won't go there now, but go home. I, maybe you don't want to do this if you have young kids with, with uh, Bible time tonight. But read Proverbs 5. God has designed intimacy in marriage for just straight up pleasure. But He places limits. Like, like think about, we're still in a situation in our culture that has some limits. But those limits are very, that, that bar is very, very low. Basically, the, basically, we have consent and contraception, and beyond that, anything goes. Everything goes, right? 
Think about this. Are, are knives good things? Anybody like a good sharp knife? I, I lo- this, is, this is one of my prized possessions. Oakley gave me this knife. You, you hardly ever find me without this knife. I really enjoy this knife. It's a, it's a good knife. And I highly recommend lots of people to carry a good knife because I use it literally every day. Knives are great, but I wouldn't go pass them out in a nursery, right? I, I wouldn't go pass them out in a prison. They're good, but there's limits. There's boundaries to it. Cars are really, really good things. I am very thankful for a good running car. But I'm not going to hand them out to 12-year-olds. Right? I, 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 am, I am very... Anybody grateful? Like, we're really, really frustrated by traffic laws. But can you imagine a world where there were no traffic laws? There, there, there's limits. Go home and read Proverbs 5. Read the Song of Solomon. Read 1 Corinthians 7. Read Genesis 2, and here's what you'll find out. God is not a prude. But he does establish boundaries. And let's just be crystal clear. Intimacy in this way, again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is for marriage. It's for a man, one man, and one woman in a lifelong commitment. Intimacy is for covenant, for commitment. And everything else dishonors the Creator. And and we could spend hours with testimony after testimony after testimony. If you use this good gift in ways that God has told us not to use it, you make a massive mess. Amen? Fight compromise. Notice what he says, fight compromise or else. He says, look, 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 at verse, look at verse 16, therefore repent. Now, now you think about this, because notice in verse 14, does he say that the whole church is given to sexual immorality? No, who does he say? Some. This is just a good reminder that we really are our brother's keeper. Because he doesn't tell, hey, listen, and you guys who are committing this, you need to repent. No, he tells the church to repent. It, it just reminds us that we really are in this thing together. We really do have to speak the truth to one another together. We really do have to fight sin together. Because is, is it hard to live in this culture and to follow Jesus with a backbone of steel and a, and a very soft, tender heart? It's very hard. We need each other. We really do need to help each other. We really do need to confront sin in each other. But notice what he says. He says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says that I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here's what he seems to be saying. Is that Pergamum, remember I told you that they were, that they were this city that was given special privileges by the Roman government? One of the special privileges were that the, that the, that the mayor, the governor, the, whatever, that, the, the person in charge of that city, he had the authority by Rome to execute capital punishment. He could do that. Normally, in any of these other provinces, capital crimes had to be taken and tried in Rome. Here, Pergamum can do it. They, and they wore a sword 
in order, you see this in Romans 13 as well, he wore a sword in order to, just as an expression, that I have that authority. But notice how Jesus describes himself. He describes himself as the one who really holds a sword, a sharp, two-edged sword. And he says, listen, you need to fear me more than you fear the person who can put you to death. You need to fear me because I, I will come if you don't and make war with the sword of my mouth. And, and I look at verse 16, I just say, I don't want to fight Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus saying, I'm going to come and make war with First Baptist Church? I don't want Jesus making war with First Baptist Church. It's a call to repentance. But, but notice here, this, this call to repentance, verse 16. Therefore, repent. This is both a warning, but can you see this is also a, a gracious invitation? It's one of the many reminders in this passage of his heart of grace. Notice what, what God is saying. There are people among you in the church who are living in sexual immorality. And he doesn't say, and therefore I'm going to strike them dead. He says, no, repent. Come to me. Come, let's make this, let's make this right. We, we are called to fight compromise by having our minds and our hearts shaped by the words and the heart of God. Finally, and we'll go quickly. Um, well, I, I, I say finally. There's, we're going to move quickly. Look at verse 13. Notice the second thing that Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, I know it's hard. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Listen to the Savior. As as we think about how difficult it is to walk in this culture without compromise and with a very tender heart, even toward, toward people who are absolutely opposed to how we think, Jesus says, listen, I, I know, I know where you live. I know it's hard. You are living where Satan's throne is. I know that it's hard. I I know what it's like to live there. I know this is not easy. I'm going to speak, but aren't you glad he knows? Like, like think about this. If if anybody knows how, how to stand with a backbone of steel and a tender heart, it's Jesus. Think about the amount of pressure on Jesus to compromise. He was pressured by his family. He was pressured by his closest friends. He was pressured by the crowds of people. He was pressured by his enemies. He's pressured by the government. Even to the point that that the government ended up putting him to death. Jesus knows what it's like to be pressured from every side. And... To live a life of absolute innocence, of complete devotion to God. He he knows the temptation toward compromise, and he also knows the cost of not compromising. He knows how to do it. So I'm really not not answering a lot of the question. How do we live with a backbone of steel and a very tender heart? Like, we can't go into all that right now. I'm running out of time. But here's what we do know. We have a Savior 
who knows exactly how to live that way. And he, he, he's not a savior who's, who's throwing out rules from an ivory tower between sips of fancy wine. He came. He lived it. He endured it. And he came across on the other side victorious. He's the one who's able to help us to hold fast to his name. Finally, notice what Jesus says. It'll be worth it in the end. I think my time is quickly coming to an end. So I'm going to be very quick here. Look at verse 17. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give them a white stone and a new, and a new name written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. The call here is to overcome. It's repeated over and over to every single one of these churches. Here's, here's the situation you're in. You're in a very difficult situation. I'm calling you to overcome. And if you overcome, I will give you some of the hidden manna. Now, what in the world is that? Really, there's two different interpretations of this. One, remember there was, there was some manna that was hidden in the ark. It was hidden in the ark. And then, and then there's this legend that the end times, he's going to give out manna. Other people say this, this hidden manna is, is actually what, what they got, the, the Israelites got to experience was just a little taste. This is the food of angels. Either way, notice what Jesus is saying. L- listen, you, you overcome. I know what you're worried about. In these trade guilds, I know you're worried about, listen, if, if, I don't, if I don't adapt to the culture, then the culture is going to reject me and they're not going to trade with me and I'm not going to be able to prosper. Notice what Jesus is saying. You, you stay with me and I'm going to give you food. I, I'm going to give you true food. I, I believe that really what Jesus is saying is, I'm going I'm to give you the true food, which is myself. I'm going to let you feed on the true manna, which is me, so that you're not just going to enjoy getting to eat for a little while in a culture that approves of you for a little while for your 80 or so years on earth, but you are going to get to feed on true food forever and ever and ever and ever. You are all concerned about what's going to happen to your name. And notice what he says. I'm going to give you a white stone. Again, there's a whole list of interpretations for this. There are, there are places that, that there, there are people who say that what Jesus is talking about here is that, is that in the court of law that, that, that the jurors would hand out black stones to those who are guilty and white stones to those who are innocent. I, I like that picture. That, that here we have Jesus saying, I'm going to give you a white stone of innocence. There's also, and this, this may be it, this, this place, remember, the, remember the, um, the, the, the God with the, with the snake, that in there they would have these rituals where they would let snakes go over them, and, and, and if they were healed, then they would sign their name on this white stone in that temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to write your name on a stone, this new name, but it, whatever it means. Notice what he's promising. I'm going to give you a white stone. Whether that's a stone of acquittal or the stone that now you've been, you belong to me, you've been healed by me, but a new name written on the stone which no one knows but the one who received it. He says in verse 13, to those who hold fast to my name. Here's, here's the hope of the gospel. That, that regardless of, of how guilty that we are, that what Jesus is promising us is a new name. And not just any name, but his name. There's not a person in this room, 
of any age on them whatsoever that has not sinned sexually. There's not a person in this room that's not been given to compromise. But here's what he's promising. Listen, I came in your place. I lived the life that you should have lived. And now I'm offering you complete forgiveness because I'm going to write my name on you. Here's, my time is over. But, but here's, here, here's, here's the message. Don't compromise. Backbone of steel. Tender heart toward those who don't agree with us. And regardless of how you've compromised, there is a Savior who came and lived in this world, endured everything that you endured, but was completely innocent, and He's offering you His record if you will repent and trust in Him. You may be dark guilty. Repent. Trust in Jesus. And he'll wash you as white as snow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for this passage. In in some ways, I feel like all we've gotten to talk about this morning is what not to do. Father, we are begging your Holy Spirit to empower us day by day, step by step, and as we feed verse by verse on your truth that you would teach us to live lives without compromise, with full hearts to those who are absolutely given to compromise. Would you help us to walk that path? Father, I pray for every guilty person in this room who even, who even is living right now in compromise, and immorality, I pray that your Holy Spirit would grant repentance, forgiveness, purify your people as white as snow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.